As many of you know, baseball was my first love when I was growing up as a kid. Some of my idols when I was growing up were guys like Ozzie Smith, Ray Lankford, and Tom Pagnozzi. But my biggest hero as a kid was Mark McGuire. I loved him. I had every baseball card, every figurine. I even had his jersey. I wanted to be just like him. When I was six years old, I was privileged to be at his 60-second home run game, and it was one of the greatest moments of my life. I was so happy and proud that my hero had done something incredible. I was probably one of his biggest fans. But years later, as we know here in St. Louis, rumors began circulating that Mark McGuire and other athletes had used steroids to help them in their achievements, to cheat. And initially, I didn't believe them. I thought, oh, all those other guys might have been juiced, but not Mark McGuire. All those other guys might have used steroids, but not, not my hero, not Mark McGuire. Those other guys might have did it, but not him. That was until March 17, 2005. I was 12. And that day, Mark McGuire and four other players were hauled in front of Congress and forced to answer questions about steroid use. And every time that Mark McGuire was asked whether or not he used steroids, he gave the same answer. I'm not here to talk about the past. I'm not here to talk about the past. Every time he was asked that question, that was his response. He basically pled the fifth. He wouldn't answer any of the questions. And as I watched the highlights on the news that night, every time he said, I'm not here to talk about the past, it felt like a gut punch to my stomach. And I went to bed that night knowing for the first time deep down that Mark McGuire had used steroids. The guy who was my hero, I now knew, had done something wrong. He fell from grace in my eyes. A guy that I admired so much all of a sudden wasn't so admirable. That emotion came back to me this past week as our archdiocese released the names of clergy who have credible and substantiated allegations of abuse of minors against them. Now, these were men who did far worse things than just injecting some steroids into their muscles, make no mistake about it. These men committed unspeakable evils on the vulnerable and the innocent, with bishops covering it up and complicit in these evils. Now, even though none of these men ever served at St. Joe's, you might have recognized a name or two in there from a previous parish maybe teaching at your high school, or even from when you were a kid. And seeing those names on that list maybe brought back a similar emotion of a fall from grace from someone you once admired. You know, last year I got up here at this pulpit in front of all of you and said we needed moral outrage for what has transpired in our church. Not legal, not sentimental, not motivated by being on the up and up legally or done because of good PR, but moral outrage. An outrage born out of a sense of right and wrong. <clears throat> and that is needed just as much today as then. But it is, I think, a good time to take stock of the, this past year and maybe some of the incremental progress that we have made as a church. <clears throat> we have about two-thirds of our dioceses who have released their names as we have done. Now, it's a patchwork system. It's not done perfectly. And sometimes lists have to be amended. I really don't consider a list to ever be final. And while I'm glad our Archdiocese has taken this first step in also making all of our files available to our State Attorney General's office, it's a good first step, but it cannot be the end. 
Releasing our names can help us come to grips with the past, but more must be done in the here and now to right long-standing wrongs. Because in the past year, we've continued to hear revelations about people like former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who preyed on the vulnerable, mostly his seminarians and young priests. He rose to a position of great prominence in the church, helped by people who either knew about it and did nothing, or people who maybe even enabled his advancement. People at the highest levels of the church demonstrating complete moral corruption. And more recently, in the last couple months, the case of Bishop Michael Bransfield, a bishop in West Virginia who was recently removed because he preyed on his seminarians and lived a lavish lifestyle incompatible with being a priest. These new revelations should compel us to diligently search out where evil has made its home in the church and purge it. It has no place in the body of Christ and no place in the priesthood. And every time I hear a revelation or a story about this kind of abuse, two things come to my heart. First of which is anger. Anger, done over, anger over the evil done against someone vulnerable, done at the hands of someone who should have protected them, done at the hands of someone called Father, perverting the words of the gospel we heard today. But the other thing that comes to my heart, honestly, brothers and sisters, is relief. Relief that the truth is starting to come to light. It means that someone courageous has come forward and told their story. We cannot be afraid of the truth, brothers and sisters. It can be difficult to swallow at times, but it is for our good and the good of our entire church that the truth is starting to come to light, albeit far too delayed. If I were to get up here and say, I'm not here to talk about the past, that would be inadequate and not the way forward. Because the victims and survivors of this abuse, along with their families, deserve so much more than what we have given them the, over the course of these last 17 years and beyond. It shows us that the church still needs to be cleansed of sin among her ranks of clergy from head to toe. And the root of this crisis, as I've said many times, is a lack of holiness among priests and a lack of holiness among bishops. We need a recommitment to clerical celibacy, a renewed simplicity of life, and obedience to each and every truth that our Holy Catholic Church teaches, both theological and especially moral. Satan has inflicted horrific damage to the body of Christ and the church at large these past roughly 75 years through clergy misconduct. It's going to take a while to fix maybe even longer than the time span of the sin itself. So we know when allegations are brought forward today, they're handled much differently than in the past, but that's only one part of this crisis. And you can take it from me, seminary formation has been radically overhauled. We have wonderful, wonderful people training our future priests. But that's only one part of this crisis, too. And releasing a list of names of clergy won't end the crisis either, because you know, after all, every priest on that list is either deceased or has been removed from ministry years ago. It won't stop every active immoral behavior by priests, and it won't purify the church on its own. That work must be carried on by all of us here. To go back to the baseball analogy for a minute, initially, Major League Baseball, their punishment for a positive steroid test was a 10-day suspension. Not 10 games, 10 days. And even at the time, everyone looked at that as a pretty pathetic and weak response. Because it didn't deter players from, from taking steroids. They still kept taking them, and they still kept testing 
positive. They still kept getting suspended. People eventually got angry and lost trust and faith in the integrity of the game itself. And every time that the league wanted to put in place tougher penalties, the players' union resisted. They were the ones who wanted to circle the wagons, look out for their own. They were the establishment. They didn't want to rock the boat. But eventually, it took outside pressure and the voices of the clean players to make their voices heard. Matt Holliday of the Cardinals was foremost among them. They went against the establishment at the time and forced the league, forced the players' union, to agree to an 81-game suspension for first offense. That's half a season. Full season for second and a lifetime ban for the third. That finally deterred steroid use. Suspensions now are fewer and far between, and trust in the game has been restored. And I can tell you from my perspective, brothers and sisters, and I know I speak for Father Nord and Monsignor Callahan too, that I'm pretty fed up with priests who live double lives like this. I pray every day for transparency, but more importantly, accountability for those who covered this up. Because we in the clergy should be held to a higher standard of conduct. That is what you deserve from your priests. We have to call all of our shepherds to accountability when we see sinful behavior being overlooked, no matter their rank in the church. Many of those who covered this up, unfortunately, decades ago are still in positions of authority. We must fight so that the truth can come to light and be acknowledged. And for us priests, this means being spiritual fathers. It's what you call us, after all. It's our title. But more than that, it's our identity. Every time I go out running an errand, and somebody spots me, and you know, I'm wearing my collar, and someone sees me and says, Hi, Father. I'm reminded of the ideals of my vocation. Every time I get a sick call and go into a hospital room full of complete strangers, people I've never met before, when I walk in there with my collar, I'm instantly recognized as father and welcomed into their family. That gives my life meaning and purpose. And every time I pray the Our Father, whether in private prayer or at every Mass I ever offer, I'm reminded of who I'm called to be. I'm called to be a father after God, our Father himself. You know, it's tragic that many people have skepticism towards priests as spiritual fathers because of the scandalous behavior of priests with a perverted sense of fatherhood. I can't say that I blame them. In my own life, Friday's list confirmed that one of the men I called father was an abuser himself. He was assigned to my parish when I was a kid, when I was in grade school. He's in the group picture of all of us at our first communion when I was in second grade. I remember having him over for dinner at our house and even baptized my little brother, Kevin. A man I called father was living a double life. Someone I once admired wasn't so admirable anymore. Even if some of our spiritual fathers have failed us, God our Heavenly Father will not, brothers and sisters. He loves us perfectly. Our well-being and our salvation was more important for him than even the earthly life of his beloved son. So when we see repulsive evils in our world and especially in our church, we must cry out to God our Father. Because only God the Father will rebuild what has been broken, repair our grieving church, and heal lives wounded by sacrilege. So when we pray the Our Father later today, I want you to think of that. Please pray that me and my brother priests be holy spiritual fathers, men willing to give of our lives 
for the flock. Pray for the victims, survivors, and their families and the pain and agony they still go through today. And pray that God will guide our church forward, give us moral courage to stand for what is right, and show us what it really means to be our Father.